This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. And the only reason I know that is because I've sat there and listened to them. And now you see when you talk to them and say, do you feel tired? Yes. Do you feel um, nauseous? Yes. Do you, do you get back pain? Yes. And they think, gosh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And so then you're winning the patient over because they're already angry with the medical profession. You know, quite often the the end of the consultation, they say, which is not a, a, a good thing about me, they say you're the first doctor who's listening. 10 to 15% of the population experiences irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS, and about twice as many women have it as do men. And because April was IBS Awareness Month, I wanted to find an expert to help educate us on a condition that often goes misdiagnosed for many, many years. And even when diagnosed, it is sometimes complicated to manage and treat. So I found Dr. Peter Warwell. He is the director of the South Manchester Neurogastroenterology Service and a gastroenterologist at the University Hospital of South Manchester, UK. And he has been researching and treating patients with IBS for over 35 years. And he has seen the depths of despair that this condition can cause. And I will tell you, he is that needle in a haystack expert, such that as I was interviewing him, which again, I did this innocently for IBS Awareness Month, I found answers to questions I didn't even know I had. So he is a true pleasure. We had such a great time. He gave me 90 minutes. We edited this down clearly, but I hope you get as much out of this as I did. So we're just going to dive right in. Take a listen. Why don't we get into, I mean, before we go into, you know, learning more about IBS and, and all of the things that you've seen in your research and working so closely in this space, why don't you just provide us your, your background um, and then we can dive right in. Right. Well, I'm a gastroenterologist. And as you know, that's a person who uh, is interested in gastrointestinal diseases. And then some of us, as we get older, sort of specialize within the specialty. Uh, And originally, I used to be very interested in Crohn's disease, but um, I became more and more interested in irritable bowel, simply because it's so difficult to treat. And nobody else takes any interest in it. And I felt very sorry for these patients in whom nobody's taking an interest and sort of gravitated to IBS. And so all I do all day now is see IBS, hundreds and hundreds of IBS patients and uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I'm getting quite old now, but I don't want to give up just because it's my hobby as well as my job. And it's nice being paid to do your hobby. I had read your book. Before I had read it and, and contacted you, I learned about the, the type of book it was. And I thought you would be such a perfect guest because you have the expertise. And I think because you have the expertise, you bring such a unique angle to the table um, because you're truly trying to solve this, even in a space where there aren't a ton of answers. And so there's an interesting quote that was early on in your book, modern medicine has become a bit of a conveyor belt where a patient tends to be sidelined if they can't be quickly fixed and they continue to have symptoms, especially if all the tests are normal and symptoms cannot be instantly explained. So tell us about that quote. That is one of the problems with modern medicine is it's become so technical now that, and the younger doctors expect everything to be solved by all these fancy tests. CTs, MRI scans, every, every few years there's a new technology. 
And the trouble is with a lot of these conditions, and it's not just irritable bowel, the tests are normal. And then I think the doctor doesn't know what to do because they, how can you treat somebody who hasn't got anything wrong with them? They, they, if a test is normal, they think there's nothing wrong with the patient and tells the patient that, and the patient thinks, well, I've got something wrong with me. And I, I think this is the, the patients come to see me and say, I'm sure there is something wrong. I'm sure they're missing something. And I say, well, and you have to explain to people that tests don't solve everything. And I get migraine, uh, not so bad these days. And I, I often use that as an analogy with my patients saying, look, I get quite severe migraines now and again. And if you did a CT scan of my head, it would be normal. But I'd be thoroughly off if the doctor said there's nothing wrong with you because I know I've got a headache. The scan won't tell him I've got a headache, but I know I've got a headache and uh, there's, there's something wrong in there. And so I think this is the problem that we've so wedded to all these tests and the old doctor, and I'm one of them now, used to be told, take the history, talk to the patient, listen to the patient and formulate a diagnosis based on the story. And that's what um, you can do in irritable bowel. If you ask the right questions, you can almost be certain about the diagnosis when you've listened to the patient. And that's another problem. I just sit there and listen to them. I, you know, I say, what, you know, tell me about the problem. And I think you have to remember, I see the top tip of the iceberg sort of patients. And so, uh, they can't believe their luck when somebody's just shutting up and listening to them and hearing their story uh, and their dissatisfaction with the medical profession quite often as well. You know, they're just told there's nothing wrong with you. They go to another doctor, there's nothing wrong with you. And so, I, I, and okay, I can't cure irritable bowel. I've never will be able to cure irritable bowel in my lifetime. And, but that doesn't mean to say I can't see them and try and help them. And I say to patients, look, because sometimes they sort of read about you and think you're better than you really are. And I say, look, I, I can't cure you, but I'm going to work with you and see if we can make life better for you. I get migraine and they don't really interfere with my life too much. You, I want your IBS to become like my migraine. You're, you're, never, you're always going to have bad days, but let's make bad days fairly intermittent and few and far between. I've interviewed now over 80 experts on all sorts of women's health conditions, and what you're bringing up is, is a theme. And so I would, if, if the guests who are, or the people who are listening don't mind, I just want to dive in a little bit on something really interesting that I had never heard or thought about, which is like, we know at least in the U S and I'm not sure how much it's happening in the UK, the doctor appointments are extremely short. And because of the way um, physicians are incentivized and now they're part of hospital networks and everything is data driven. Um, you know, I guess I just assumed a lot of it had to do with the limited time and the type of training doctors are getting, but what I'm hearing, and I would think the data would be helpful. And it's so interesting to hear from you, you know, when you started practicing, it was a lot more of that two-way conversation. So I guess just to help patients have perspective when they're going to see that doctor, and even for the doctors who do listen to this podcast, can you talk a little bit more about how in this day, especially in the US, again, I'm not sure of the UK, um, 10 minute appointments, how, how does someone navigate have, trying to help that doctor help them with yeah. the reality of limited time? People say to me, why do you spend so long with your patients? And I say to them, it's an investment. I couldn't deal with irritable bowel in 10 minutes because it's just too complicated. But what I say to them is, look, I'll spend an hour with a patient and they probably won't want to see me again, or they may only just want to see me again in a year's time. If you spend 10 minutes with a patient, you'll never get past first base. And 
then the next time you just get to first base again. And so you never move on. And in the UK healthcare system now with the general practitioner, it's 10 minutes. And then the trouble is their groups of general practitioners now. So the next time they go, they don't even see the same doctor. Yeah. And so they start all over again. And it's a complete waste of resource because if that doctor perhaps took 30 minutes or 20 minutes, they'd probably make a lot more progress. And those patients, and the trouble is that the longer the patients in that system, the more disenchanted they become, the more distressed they become, and more angry they become, mm -hmm. then that makes the condition worse. And then they start get, get, falling out with their doctors. And, you know, I see patients sometimes, the record is 50 doctors before me, 50 specialists before me. And, and she was quite a nice person. I couldn't see the problem. Uh, she, you know, we all have a few patients that yes. um, are difficult, let's put it that way. But um, she wasn't, she was a delightful person, but she just wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, it was, it was a quite a complicated story and you had to spend time. And I share my, I saw one yesterday who um, was, I didn't think she did have irritable bowel. And I said to her, I'm having difficulty here. I don't think you've got irritable bowel. Endometriosis was the other agenda in her. And I wasn't convinced she had endometriosis either. So I said to her, um, you know, I don't think this is a gastrointestinal problem, but I'd like to see you again in six months in case it morphs into a gastrointestinal problem. And I sort of really enjoyed today because I, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> but I'm going to keep an eye on you because I'll learn from this. And I, I learn from my patients. Yes. Perhaps we'll come to IBS patients. They nearly all get low backache. They all feel tired all the time. They often feel nauseous and bladder symptoms. And the only reason I know that is because I've sat there and listened to them. And now you see when you talk to them and say, do you feel tired? Yes. Do you feel um, nauseous? Yes. Do you, do you get back pain? Yes. And they think, gosh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And so then you're winning the patient over because they're already angry with the medical profession. You know, quite often the, the end of the consultation, they say, which is not a, a, a good thing about me, they say, you're the first doctor who's listening. And, you know, that's awful to think that, you, yes. you know, they say that. The other thing that I do, because a third of my patients are suicidal, mm. I try and joke quite a lot in the interview. And I, I usually, and the nurses in the clinic often say, why are they all smiling when they come out of the clinic? And it's because we mess around with it. And they say there's laughter coming from the clinic. And because it's such an awful condition to have, you've almost got to lighten the atmosphere. Yes. And you, you know, you, I, I, if you let me say, yes, I'm sure you're, thoroughly pissed off with this condition. You know, because they say, I say, you're not depressed, you're just pissed off, and that's different. And so it, it's trying to be human and, and show that you are, you know, I've been doing it so long, I haven't got irritable bowel, and I would absolutely hate to have it. I think it's worse than cancer, because at least you know where you are with cancer. You're either dead or you're cured or you know where you're going. And often I, and I say this because I often see patients who, not because of their IBS, but they develop cancer. Now, breast cancer is very common. And I see a lot of patients who develop breast cancer. And I say, I'm really sorry to hear about that. Don't worry about the breast cancer. I know where I'm going. Just get a flaming irritable bowel under control. Interesting and all these horrible symptoms. And just to bring the female into this, a lot of women get pain on intercourse. And that is a big problem. And the, the problem is that the bowel in IBS is tender, and therefore it's not surprising that it's, uh, it's a deep 
pain on it. It's called deep dyspareunia because it's not a vaginismus type of pain. It's a sort of deep pain they get. And of course, then they become afraid to have intercourse. And then the partner thinks, have they gone off me? Or is there a problem? Even if and she tries to go through with it. And so pain on intercourse. And the trouble is, as a male gastroenterologist, that's quite hard to raise, especially these days. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, it's more of a problem these days than when I was younger, because I suppose as a male, you didn't, you weren't quite so careful. I used to raise it because quite often they'd come with the husband. I used to always think, then I always asked it because I'd guess that it was probably a problem. Get, if we get into the gynae side of things, because I always ask about um, you know, periods and things like that, and they, uh, I feel I've got their confidence, I might just say as well. Because you know, what I go through at the end, I say, look, this is typical irritable bowel. You've got pain, you've got bloating, you've got funny bowels, you've got low backache, you feel tired all the time, you feel sick, you've got a bit of the periods make it worse. Uh, and I, I, sometimes I don't ask it. I say, and some women, you can get pain on intercourse. So I haven't asked them. I've just thrown it into the mix. You mentioned the gynecological problems I, I did want to talk a little bit about, because you had brought up endometriosis and IBS. So I actually have endometriosis. It is diagnosed as silent endometriosis because I was asymptomatic. I will admit that now that I've been doing the podcast and know so much more about it, I actually think I'm symptomatic, but it's so minor that it's things I wouldn't have noticed and I probably normalized. But nonetheless, one of the experts that I had interviewed, Dr. Tamar Suchkin, I don't know if you know him, he was actually my surgeon. And he also um, started the Endometriosis Foundation of America. It's funny because when I had interviewed him, he was like, there isn't IBS, it's endometriosis. And you've been talking, and I, and I know we're not trying to get into a battle. And at the end of the day, this is really about the data for women's health isn't there. IBS, we're still needing information. Endometriosis, we're still needing information. So what I like to offer listeners is alternate perspectives. And so because you specialize in this field and you had mentioned earlier, did that patient come to you with endometriosis or is it IBS or who knows what? I'd love to get your perspective on this endo-IBS dynamic and how someone can figure out the difference and how that might even impact treatment. Yeah, it, it is really a kind of worms. I, as a gastroenterologist, I worry more about missing endometriosis than any other condition. I don't worry about bowel cancer because they've all been colonoscopes by the time they come to me. And so it's very unlikely to miss anything like that. But endometriosis is always something that I've, I, I, I have in the back of my mind with every patient. And because I have in the past missed it and, and it, it can be catastrophic if they get instinal obstruction or something you know like that. So uh, I think it is an important thing. So what we've done over the years is um, collaborate very closely with the OBGYN people and one particular gynecologist in particular and have tried to understand it a bit more. And what we did, one study we did, which I think was quite useful, was we took, we, we took all their endometriosis patients and put them through an IBS diagnostic process and then looked at outcomes and things like that. I should perhaps say before I go into that is, look, even earlier, many years ago now, we did a survey of the prevalence of IBS in the gynae clinic. And we found that 50% of patients had IBS. The, the prevalence of IBS, let's say it's about 15% in the populace, probably only 10%, but 10 to 15%. So it's almost double the prevalence in the gynae clinic. Now this was done probably over 20 years ago. And what was interesting, the gynecologist hadn't asked about bowel habits at all or anything. And so they, they hadn't even considered IBS. Now, fortunately, we've published widely on this and, and I think gynecologists are far more 
aware of IBS now because I get referrals from gynecologists all the time. I think this is an IBS. And so we also showed that IBS was more common in the, in the urology clinics, 50% again uh, compared with, and they were going with their bladder symptoms, their irritable bladders, because about 70% of IBSs have irritable bladder. And so I always ask the patients, you know, do you go frequently or do you go urgently? Don't ask about stress incontinence because that's more mechanical. Right. Urgency and urging consonants and frequency. And uh, so we've shown that, you know, IBS is overrepresented in these clinics. And what was interesting was when you broke it down, the IBS was almost totally confined to the abdominal and pelvic pain group. If they had cancer or abnormal smears or blood in their you know, vaginal bleeding, the IBS prevalence was 15%. So it was just those abdominal pains that were going to the wrong clinic or could have been going to the wrong. But what we did, we followed them up and showed that those that are with IBS in the gynec clinic didn't have good outcomes because they haven't got haven't got a gun problem, they've got IBS. And so that's what got me more involved in endometriosis, thinking this is, this is different, we, we need to sort this one out. So what we did was we took IBS, like endometriosis patients, and they were, endometriosis in the UK, I presume it's the same, this was a few years ago, is classified as minimal, mild, moderate and severe on laparoscopy. I don't yep. know if that's the same. Yeah, they pretty. I think it's like one, two, three, four is right. pretty much what I've seen. So what, in here. We, what we showed was that IBS seemed to be much more common in your one and twos, and the three and fours were the uh, the ones that you know that it seemed to be much more the endometriosis is causing the problem. Now, what we deduced from this is that one of the, the biggest abnormality, probably the biggest abnormality in IBS is visceral, which is the name for urinates, hypersensitivity. So if you put a balloon up my bottom and blow it up in my rectum, I will feel pain at a 40, let's call it 40. Okay, it's, it's a pressure. If you put a balloon up an IBS bottom and blow it up, they feel pain at only 10. So you can blow a balloon up much more in me than an IBS patient. So that means their gut is tender, and that's why they get the pain on intercourse. But what we're speculating, because they also get bladder symptoms in these patients, that it's their organs that are hypersensitive their inter-abdominal organs, and therefore their womb and their ovaries and their tubes are probably a bit more sensitive than they should be. And therefore, that's why perhaps the, the mild and minimal IBS uh, endo patients are feeling symptoms because they, they can feel even a teeny little bit of endometriosis. This is all speculation. This is me speculating. Yep. But it, it, so what we tend to do, if a patient has mild or minimal IBS, uh, endo, we say, let's treat your IBS first. Because the treatment of severe endo is quite, into, you know, you laser it and you cause scars. And that might be a problem if you've got a hypersensitive in it. And or you're given artificial menopause and all these things. So I don't even interfere in the middle, moderate to severe, but I'll just say, well, look, the treatment of endometriosis is quite invasive. My treatment is not invasive. It's all diets and, and you know, mild drugs. Let's try and treat your IBS first. And if we can get it under reasonable control, we can safely conclude that perhaps, I'm not saying you haven't got endometriosis, but I'm just saying perhaps if I've been able to get you better, in inverted commas, improved, in other words, it could be more IBS than endo. 
That's the way we manage it. Okay. But I don't interfere at all. You know, if they've got moderate to severe, yeah, that's that's trouble. This is so interesting because so the so the next question I had kind of has to do with what you're saying, and I kind of want to bring it full circle. So this pattern of bloating and distension. So in social media, um, people are posting and calling it endo belly. I'm so fascinated by because I feel like all of this relates. So you know, I was I think a was I stage two endo. I mean, maybe I was a later stage. I, in my report that I read, I couldn't find the staging, um, but like I. I often, especially if I've had sugar, I don't eat a lot of sugar, but I do notice a huge impact throughout the day. I get bloated. I wake up and I'm like a different person. Same thing throughout the day. I get bloated. I wake up and I'm fine. And, you know, I had infertility um, and it was after I had the surgery, um, the laparoscopic surgery where they removed, they had, I had a ton more endo than they thought. And again, cause I wasn't terribly symptomatic. It was a shock to everyone. Um, and my first IVF that I had had after that, I was able to get pregnant. I couldn't do it naturally. I think it was six months later that I did the IVF. Yeah. I would love your comments on that from like the, the bloating part as well. Um, cause that seems to be a symptom. And I guess at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's not really like back to how we started this whole thing of, you know, nowadays the physicians want a nice data point to say, this is it. And I'm not sure if the box really matters of, is it endo? Is it IBS? Um, to some degree it might, but I'm just so curious on your thoughts around this endo belly, you know, thing on social media and IBS endo. And yeah, I'd love to, to get your thoughts on that. To give you another perspective on this as well. The first thing I got into is I, as a gastroenterologist, I used to see Kramer's colitis all day long. And I noticed when I got them better, they were still in trouble. And I thought, what's going on here? And they were saying they were bloating and all this sort of thing. And I suddenly realized that these people had got irritable bowel when they were in remission. You know, all the Crohn's was under control or the colitis was under control, and yet these patients. And I was seeing patients from colleagues who were then giving them more steroids, even though, you know, they didn't have any evidence it was active. They were getting big round faces because they were on more steroids. And I started treating these people for irritable bowel, and sure enough, they improved. So we've got this problem that, after the colitis had gone, it has left the gut sensitive, and therefore that's basically irritable bowel. And so I think this hypersensitivity is, is a, a massive problem. Now, just about every woman with IBS who we know has got normal laparoscopy and uh, will get trouble at the time of their period. That's, that's normal for them. So I always warn patients when I say you've got IBS, do you get worse at the time of your periods? Yes. And so I say, well, be careful about that because that could make you start going to a gynecologist and we don't want you to have a lot of unnecessary tests. But on the other hand, we'll do a scan and perhaps we're, we're, if, 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 the if your symptoms at the time of your period are really bad, we may have to think about a gynecologist. But what I'm much more interested in is symptoms between periods, because then if they've not got anything going on uh, in between periods, then that suggests that you know, if, if the IBS is no worse uh, and if they're bloating between periods, then that makes me think, this is much more likely to be IBS. So, so now about symptoms, because, you know, it, from what I read in your book, it, it seems like IBS is also somewhat of a diagnosis of exclusion as well. And, you know, I'd love to learn more about the symptoms because when I think of IBS and it could be because I have a friend who um, I met right after college and I remember the cramping. I mean, she would be keeled over in pain. And she had talked about IBS. I actually was working on one of the pharmaceutical products that was developed for IBS. They ended up, I think, launching much later than when I was working on it. Um, so I think of it as like keeling over in pain. And then I'm reading your book. You know, I'm also even thinking of like, I was like observing my body. I learned so much from the experts about my body as well. And I'm like, okay, so I get 
severe anxiety. Like right before my period, I am like a monster. I get my period and I feel like I've been on vacation for 10 weeks. Um, I get bloating in between. If I wake up in the morning, I'm fine throughout the day. It's bloated. Then it's gone. I don't have cramps. Um, I do get a cramp once in a while where I keel over, but it's like once every quarter, maybe once a year. So it's like, I just feel like all these things are interrelated and how do you piece this out? Because, you know, we, we need multidisciplinary teams to all be collaborating. It's not how our healthcare system is set up. You know, I, I guess I would just love your reaction to when, when we say symptoms, like how does someone begin to figure out what it could be? And as a result, how that treatment is and, and who they should go to, because everyone's subspecializing and it's, it's very siloed. And I'm an old physician, so I come up from the training. I've done gynecology, I've done gastroenterology, I've rheumatology, endocrinology, you name it, I've done every specialty because that's what you did in my day. And so I feel very comfortable moving in and out of specialties. I always say to a patient, look, I haven't done any gynecology for 20 years, I haven't done any rheumatology for 40 years or whatever it is, but I know a bit about it. And so I do feel comfortable going outside of my expertise. As long as I tell the patient, I am not an expert in this. I'm always banging on about HRT. I think it ought to be put in the water, quite honestly. And, um, you know, I tell IBS always gets, well, not always, I'm being a bit dogmatic today, quite often gets worse at the time of the menopause. And so I say, look, you know, and quite often patients come back to me and say, you know, you told me I'd get worse at the time of my menopause, and you're dead right. What are you going to do about it? And I said, well, just go on HRT. That's your best chance. Doctors are becoming more and more specialised. And I often joke there's going to be a doctor for the right arm and then there's going to be a doctor for the left arm. (laughs) It's getting crazy. And gastroenterologists don't think about the diaphragm and don't think below the pelvis or don't even like to enter the pelvis quite often. So, you know, it's crazy. And I remember doing a ward round um, just before I stopped doing general medicine and they took me to this patient with gastroenterological problems, who was one of my patients. And I saw this melanoma on her cheek. And I, I said to the, the, the doctors around me, what about the, the melanoma on her cheek? And they all hadn't even noticed it. Uh, and it's bizarre because it was a gastroenterological problem. They, <laughs> uh, and that's the worry. And so once a patient gives off a symptom like low back pain, they ignore it because it's not within their sort of expert, was their so-called expertise. So I think it could get worse, this lack of recognition as doctors become more and more specialized and just don't feel comfortable. Because um, I remember when I worked in America, I think you're, you were ahead of us because um, I was on a gastro uh, unit and the patient would come in with a bit of chest pain, and I'd say, they'd say, call the cardiologist, get a cardiology consult. I said, I'll look at the ECG for you. <laughs> EKG, sorry. And, um, I, and they, they, they were sort of, oh no, we need a consult. And I, I couldn't, and that was really very odd. And, and I felt, I can't, I can't, in respiratory, just listen to the chest and make a diagnosis. But now we've gone the same way in the UK. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite worrying because then I think things get missed. Yeah. Whereas I think my antennae are always twitching, you know, when, when and it, I think when you get old and you've seen things so often, but in answer to your question, yes, if I see somebody who's getting colicky abdominal pain, crampy abdominal pain. And by that, I usually say, is your pain a squeezing pain, a twisting pain, or a stabbing pain? And if they say, yes, it's just like that, and it's here, somewhere in here, then I say that's pretty much gastrointestinal spasm, even if she isn't bloating, and even if she's got normal bowel function. If the pain's aching, 
I wouldn't be, you know, I can't think of all this could be, you know, if it's low down endometriosis or whatever. But I, the, what's interesting is the more of these non-colonic symptoms I'm getting, the backache, the feeling tired, the feeling sick, the bladder symptoms, they all suggest this sort of hypersensitivity type of situation rather than, you know, cancer or something, you know, ulceration or what have you. So I think the history is, is what people like me listen, and then as the story comes on and the, 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 the symptoms come out, you either relax and think, oh yes, just another irritable bowel, or I've got to listen hard here. Okay. This isn't this story isn't quite right. And I think this is this sort of sixth sense you get when you're a very experienced doctor mm -hmm. especially when you've been through the training I've yeah. had, where it's yeah. very wide uh, now whether the young doctors will grow up to be like me because they haven't done other specialties they've just done you know you have to go into gastro right at the beginning now what I'm hearing from you is when it's IBS, when I read your book a lot, and you even alluded to it earlier, is that a lot of the treatments are like diet-based and some medications. We have this as a um, diagnosis of exclusion. Are there any specific symptoms that put you over the edge to say, yes, this is definitely IBS versus something else? Like is abdominal cramping the, like, it has to have that. And if it doesn't have cramping, it's not IBS. And then that impacts treatment. Like what, if you were to look at some sort of a high level treatment algorithm as a guide, like what, what is that thing that helps you say, yep, hundred percent IBS versus maybe not. Yeah. And there are those people where you just don't know. I think bloating for me is really important. If they don't bloat, I'm suspicious that it's not IBS. Men don't bloat as much as women. And they often regard to say it's a hard feeling in their tummy. They don't say it's bloating. We've got a bloatometer, which measures change of girth. And we quite often see it, we, you wear it for 24 hours. And we often see uh, a, a change in girth of 20 centimeters, which is huge. And as, and as you rightly say, it comes on during the course of the day and as it's, it's height in the in the evening, it goes down overnight and then comes up again. And that's that's typical, what we call diurnal bloating. Now, the big problem is there's, there's bloating, which is what patients talk about, and there's distension, where you see visible distension. And with our bloatometer, all women complain of bloating. They use that word. But if with the bloatometer, the only 50% of people who bloat, who complain of bloating, actually distend. And so um, we've shown that the ones that feel bloated but don't distend are more sensitive, so they feel it more, I suppose. But certainly diurnal bloating, going up in, as the day goes on and down at night, makes me think if they've got an abnormal bowel habit, we're pretty much home and dry with irritable bowel. If bloating doesn't go down overnight, that's a red flag. That could be something sinister. And the one, obviously, we worry about is ovarian cancer. So it is very important to not dismiss bloating as just a woman's problem. But, it, 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 but if, it, if it doesn't go up and down, then I get very worried. Now, I see really nasty patients with that, not nasty patients, patients with nasty IBS, and they sometimes are bloated the whole time. They come in with this enormous dummy and it never goes down. But that's very much tertiary care, and they've all had scans and everything, so you know they haven't got ovarian cancer anyway. But if I saw a new patient who said, I'm bloated all the time, it never goes down, they'd be off to a scan straight away because I'd okay. be worried about liver disease in, in particular men and ovarian cancer in females. Got it. Perhaps just one other thing I thought of, which is yep. really helpful in the diagnosis, okay. is family history. So if they say, I, mommy and daddy had it and 
grandpa had it. That's really strongly suggestive of IBS. And a history of tonsillitis as a child, very strong, very strong association. I think it's because they take so many antibiotics that then wrecks their, their gut by, yep. by microbiome. But ton, if they say they've had tonsillitis or, or acne as a, a, a teenager because they take antibiotics for two years, tonsillitis as a child, acne as a teenager, family history, bloating and, um, and abnormal bowel habits, stop thinking type of thing. So I did, it's very important yeah. to remember those. Okay. And it's a case of how do we keep our gut microbiome as healthy as possible. The relationship between the, the buzzword is dysbiosis. The relationship between dysbiosis and IBS, I think will, will turn out to be right. But I, the patients come in at the moment with their, what's your comprehensive stool analysis. And I say, I'm sure what is written on those pages of detail is correct, but I don't know what to do with it because we don't know what's normal yet. And the trouble is, if you lived in Africa, your microbiome would be completely different to mine because of diet and, and environmental uh, differences. So until we know what a normal microbiome is, I can't really help you. And patients say, is it worth having a comprehensive stool analysis? And I said, well, it's not going to do you any harm if you find it interesting. But I say to them, usually, I suspect in 10 years time, you'll be getting it automatically. We'll have a comprehensive stool analysis. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. We'll give you A, B, and C. And then the next patient will give you X, Y, and Z, the cocktail of the bacteria you're missing, or they'll get rid of the bacteria that you shouldn't have in there. So I think its day will come, but I, I don't think we're there yet. So I usually say things like, you know, no harm in taking probiotics. They don't do any harm. If it doesn't work after a few weeks, try another one. Uh, and so definitely uh, think about, I take a probiotic every day, can't do me any harm, don't have any tummy problems, but you know, we, we live a rather sterile lives these days, so shoving in a few good germs doesn't seem a bad idea. So I think that's important. So yes, everybody I see asks about the microbiome now, and particularly probiotics. They even ask about fecal transplantation these days, patients. And I say, well, again, there's some evidence that people with IBS have dysbiosis. We don't know how to treat that yet, so we treat it with, we try probiotics. I do feel that fecal transplantation is a bit extreme at this stage, the safety issues, you know, uh, how is it prepared? There have been a few accidents with it uh, that people have been given nasty bugs with, in, with the uh, transplant. Um, I think there's a condition called Clostridium difficile diarrhea, which is a very severe form of diarrhea that you can get after antibiotic usage, which can be fatal, especially in the elderly. It cures that fecal transplantation. So there's no question about fecal transplantation in that particular disease. But I think in IBS, I think the jury is out at the moment. I never stop somebody having it if they, if they're, and I, if I can't help them, and they say, "What about fecal transplantation?" I say, "Well, I'm a little bit worried about it still." but I can put you in touch with a very good doctor who does it. Do you want me to go on about diet? You know, what are the, the foundations? Well, the first thing I always talk about is diet because they've, the patient wants to talk about diet. And with this FODMAP diet, have you heard of this FODMAP yes. diet? And so they all want to talk about it. And they've always wanted to talk about it. And as I say in my book, in the old days, they were all eating bran all day. And it was pretty blooming obvious that was making them no better. 
and we got that published and showed that 10% of people are improved by Bran, and I think it's about 40% are made worse by Bran. So, it, you know, the very treatment that I was taught to give patients when I was a medical student was actually making most patients worse. And so that led me to believe, start thinking, well, that's fiber, this insoluble fiber. Could this be a problem? Or could fiber be a problem? And so we, and then what was interesting in this paper we published on in The Lancet, which is a very good journal about bran being worse, making IBS worse. We'd looked at vegetables, but I'd ignored it for some reason. And it's there in print that vegetables can make IBS worse and fruit can make IBS worse. I published it, but I didn't notice it because I was so obsessed with proving bran is bad. <laughs> you know, I was too focused. And we showed that vegetables can make IBS worse. So then you're getting into difficulties because we're all being told to eat healthily now in this country, five a day and all this sort of thing. And you have to tread very carefully these days, again, uh, because people get quite excitable about diet and, and quite evangelical about diet, some people. And so I sort of tread carefully with the patients and say, sometimes a healthy diet may not be quite as good as you think. And especially when I go into it, I say, you know, what are you eating? And they say, I eat this really healthily. And I think, ooh, we may have to tone this down a little bit. But I do tread very carefully. I'm not, I think the worst thing you can be as a doctor is really dogmatic. Now that we have your expertise, like what would you say as a precaution around the medications that are offered? There is no one treatment for IBS. And there is no one-size-fits-all treatment for IBS. I'm going to go through a process of trial and error, and there may be quite a lot of error. And so when I give them the dietary advice, I say, look, this may not work for you, but it may do. It'll work better for a diarrhea IBS because they are making their diarrhea worse because fiber is a laxative. So they're making their diarrhea worse. For a constipation patient, but quite often I'll see a really bad IBS who has a relative really bloating. Because if, if somebody wants their bloating to get better, the best thing to do is do our diet, cut, cut back on fiber. That's the first thing we always do. Now, quite often I'll see a real bloated female with a normalish bowel habit, but they're eating tons of fiber. So what they really are is they're a constipated IBS who's compensated with tons of fiber, you see. And so their, their bowel habit is normal, but they're bloating and getting pain. But so I say to them, look, I want you to try, I want you to gradually reduce the fiber. You'll probably then become constipated and then we can give you a laxative and I give them some advice about a laxative. Because the other thing I'd like to come out on the airwaves is laxatives do not damage the bowel. I was taught as a medical student that laxatives are really bad, you can't take them. And that is complete nonsense. And because patients quite often when I put them on laxatives, say, I feel better now, can I stop them? I say, no. You, you, you need that laxative. If I put you on a blood pressure tablet and your blood pressure came down, you wouldn't stop it because your blood pressure would go back up again. So think of your laxative like a blood pressure tablet for your bowel. So what kind of laxatives do you recommend? Does it matter? Like I know X-lax is one. It's, it's polyethylene glycol is the constituent. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Again, I say to patients, look, you've got Muvacol, uh, 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 polyethylene glycol, you've got Senna, you've got Bisacodal. Play with them and find the one that suits you. Okay. And then take a dose that gives you a reasonably good clear out every day. The worst way to take a laxative is intermittently because then you're chasing your bowel habit all the time. Right. You need to, or if you leave, uh, and the other thing is that if you leave it two or three days, you'll need more to get the thing out. And then, of course, 
it will be too empty. And so it's much better to try and mimic a normal bowel habit by taking the smallest dose of a laxative every day that gives you a good clear out and you will never get into trouble with it. it will, it's better out than in. You know, outside of contacting an expert like yourself, like what, what would you say people, you know, should, should be considering and what would you want them to know? I find that a really challenging question, actually. I agree. I, I, I don't, I'm a bit gloomy about the way medicine's going at the moment in terms of all these conditions that are called, uh, they're called medically unexplained symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a derogatory term in itself, isn't it, really? Yep. Patients making it up. And I think we, we need to um, educate medical students, but they're all obsessed with CT scans and MRI scans and things like that. And they, if, they, if they're negative, they blame the patient. It must be all in their head. And that's the problem, that how do we re-educate the whole medical system? And how do we you know, spend more time listening to our patients in this busy world? I, I, I don't really know what to do about it because when my generation die out, I think it's going to be a problem because um, you know the, 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 my equivalents in your country and, and in Europe, but we're all fairly old. Um, and there are a few young kids on the block, thank goodness. But you know, the average gastroenterologist is far more interested in Crohn's disease than ulcerative colitis than irritable bowel. And yet they'll see far more IBS than Crohn's and colitis. And they see their job as ruling out cancer and getting rid of them. Uh, ruling out inflammatory bowel disease as well. So that's right. what the gastroenterologist, not all of them, of course, but the average gastroenterologist sees their job as ruling out cancer and inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease, and then get rid of the rest because they're just too time consuming. How do you deal with that problem? There's millions of them. Thank you so much for your time. Truly, like clearly you're passionate and knowledgeable. And I really, I know people will take so much out of this. And I really hope that this helps, even if it's one person, but I know it will help many more. So I really appreciate your dedication to this field. Lovely to meet you.